About a year ago right now, I was at Fort Leavenworth at the Army Master Resiliency Training, and one of the core modules of that training, which you've heard me talk about uh, over the last year or so, was the fact that every human has what's called a negativity bias. Our brains appear to be hardwired to give disproportionate weight to negative input over positive. Whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, this is true, and it negatively impacts relationships, decision-making, and virtually every part of our lives. And the antidote that they focus on is hunt the good stuff, which, and those are, both of those are biblical principles that we are to guard our thoughts and we are to go out and look for and give thanks to God for the good stuff. But the negativity bias often comes into play when we read scripture and then when some people hear the words of the Lord. So for instance, John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, then you're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if you've known the kindness and goodness of Jesus, you think, well, what's negative about that? And I would say nothing, but others wouldn't necessarily see it that way. The truth will set you free. They like that last part. It's catchy. I like to be free, which means to do what I want to do. But there's a conditional if in that passage. If you hold to my teaching, then you'll know the truth. Then the truth will set you free. And so when you talk to someone about the biblical commands, the lordship of Jesus, the truth, like Crystal prayed, versus my truth, the negativity bias kicks in. It sounds like restriction. It sounds like a loss of freedom. So wait a minute. You said I would be free. Freedom is doing what I want, not what someone else wants. But the cosmos creator became flesh, has designed us. He knows exactly how we're designed. And he said, obey me, and that will make you free. So you can't hang the truth in midair. The foundation is the truth is a settled fact. It's given to us by the Lord, not designed by us. So freedom is only to be found in obedience. Let's go to another place where the Lord has spoken definitively. Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth, and, and Trace just read this, has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So the negativity bias, teach them to obey my commands, becomes you better obey me or else. And then go means get out there. What's wrong with you, you slackers? Why aren't you out winning the world to Jesus? And what we have here is called the Great Commission. All authority belongs to Jesus. Nothing and no one can stop him. And that's meant to be and is a very hopeful, very promising thing. I'm sending you with a purpose. You don't have to guess what your purpose is and no one can stop you. I don't have to find my life purpose. Already, It's been given to me. And nothing external to me can stop me from living my purpose. Teach them to obey because when they obey, they're going to live in freedom. So we're not selling anything. We're just telling people, here's what freedom looks like. I'm with you to the very end. The Lord himself stands behind his words. And so we're called by Christ into the freedom of living in obedient relationship with him. We're called by Christ into the joy of inviting others into the freedom of obedient relationship with him. So we don't have to be defensive on the cultural defensive all the time. We don't have to worry about offending people. You know, they have their beliefs. I have my beliefs. I don't want to be offensive. Well, then don't be offensive. I have good friends who don't believe. We've had conversations recently. They're not offended that I do. They're not offended when I tell them what I believe. Now, some, of course, are going to be offended. But if you're not being offensive, that's not on you. The gospel's truth. The gospel's freedom. We get to enjoy that freedom. We get to invite people into that freedom. And you can make it more complicated than that if you want to, but you don't have to if you don't want to. Today we're in John 1, starting in verse 19. I'm going to read it verse a few verses at a time, then we're going to talk about it as we go. 
We'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. So word had reached Jewish headquarters in Jerusalem that there was a strange guy drawing crowds, baptizing people in the river and causing some commotion. And so some priests and Levites, and Levites were people who couldn't be priests, but they could serve as a kind of temple police, and they went out to check him out. First century Palestine was filled with expectations that the Messiah was imminent, coming any day now, and there were plenty of nutty, self-proclaimed messiahs running around. And so there were these teams who would go out and check on these kind of things. First, because these nuts could cause a lot of problems if they stirred up trouble, caught the Roman authorities' attention, the Jewish um, Leaders didn't want that. But they also generally wanted to know if maybe God was up to something. Maybe, maybe the Messiah was showing up. Ironically, he had, and many of them missed him. So the delegation asked, are you the Messiah? Nope. What then, they asked, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Malachi, Malachi, in Malachi 4 or 5, he said, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before that great and de- dreadful day of the Lord. And so they were expecting this forerunner, prophet Elijah. Again, there were plenty of self-appointed prophets who dressed up like Elijah and went around saying, thus saith the Lord, but they were false spokesmen. When I was in seminary in Fort Worth, there was a guy set up a wooden stand in the parking lot in the, between these buildings where all the students would migrate between classes. And he was on this little, literally soapbox, calling down God's wrath on all of us hypocrites. And I stood there fascinated by the guy, listening to him ranting And I was thinking, well, some of that's not too far off. I know I deserve some of that critique. But then a professor who was widely known for being a man of deep and authentic faith walked by the parking lot prophet. This man was my mentor, Dr. Roy Fish. He had discipled men and women all over the world. I once took him to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. He traveled a lot and to drop him off. And he was walking by people that ran the ticket booth or even people handling luggage, and they knew him by name because he'd been kind to them, shared the gospel with them. That's who he was. So when the parking lot prophet, as Dr. Fish walked by, pointed his finger and called him a fraud hypocrite, we all walked away. This guy definitely doesn't know what he's talking about. And so the delegation asked, are you Elijah? Are you the real deal? He could be a fraud, but he could also be the real deal. And they wanted to know. And John said, nope. Now this is odd, because Jesus is going to later identify John as the Elijah who would come pointing to him. So was John confused? No, John was unaware. Jesus had a greater view of John's importance than John himself had. That's a good thing, by the way. More on that in a minute. Are you the prophet, they asked. So Moses had told Israel all those years earlier that God would rise up a prophet like himself, and these first century Jews were looking for this guy as well, hoping he would be a part of ushering in the new age of Israel's greatness, kick out the Roman oppressors, John said, nope, not him either. Who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? So they required to bring back a report. They couldn't just go out and come back and say, we don't know. And John was refusing all their categories. So in exasperation, you've got to give us something. He said, okay, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path, the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. And so he described himself quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And Isaiah was announcing deliverance for the exiles in Babylon. Remember back to January, we were in Daniel. And he was calling for a preparation of a road back to Jerusalem. So he was speaking metaphorically. They were going to travel on a real road, but the road he was talking about was their hearts. Prepare your hearts for freedom. 
And so John said, I'm just a guy out here in the desert telling people, get your hearts ready for return to God. The way out of exile, sin's exile, the Messiah's coming. He's a path of freedom. Prepare to walk that path. Get your hearts ready. And so they said, well, why do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? If you aren't one of the big three, where does your authority to baptize come from? And non-Jews were often being baptized at the, at the time as a part of a ceremonial cleansing to become converts to Judaism. But John was baptizing Jews. Why? And since he's not a person of importance, not one of the big three, what do you think he was doing? And he didn't answer their question directly, but he focused his attention on his life purpose, which was to bear witness to Jesus. I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. So in the first century, the task of removing sandals and washing feet was carried out by servants. Normally, a Jewish servant would not even be asked to do this for his Jewish boss. It was assigned to a Gentile service. It was beneath him. It was the lowest of low tasks. And so John, in line with his humility that we've already seen, makes this clear statement of where he believes he ranks in relationship to Christ. I'm I'm unworthy to untie his sandal or wash his feet. So a Jewish servant would not wash feet. A Gentile servant was low enough to wash feet. John said, I'm lower than that. Washing his feet would be too great an honor for me. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now at this point, John had already baptized the Lord and knew who he was. And when he says he formerly didn't know who Jesus was until it was revealed to him, he doesn't mean he didn't know Jesus the man. They were related on his mother's side. What he means is, I didn't know he was the Messiah until God revealed it. It's similar to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.16 when he said, we don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. And so Paul's saying, we used to see Jesus as just a man. No longer. We see who he is. And in fact, because of that, we don't see people just as people anymore. We see Jesus who he is. Now we see others who they are. They're not people to be feared or hated or ignored or idolized or overly influenced by. But these are either followers of Christ or lost and separated from God. And that's how we have learned to see people. We don't move through life being impressed. We don't move through life trying to be impressive. We move through life trying to bless people who have been, who have been made in the image of God so he is a land that takes away the sins of the world. This doesn't mean that everyone is, is saved. John's going to later write in the famous John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish. And so he is the Savior of the world, and all who believe and receive him are saved by him. And John, Jesus said, is going to baptize in the Holy Spirit all those who follow him. Baptize is a word that literally means to immerse or to dip in. You just saw it. And all followers of Christ will have the very Spirit of God permanently dwelling in them. They're immersed in the, in the Spirit. And some Christians have believed that there is a, an experience separate from salvation where they call it being baptized in the Spirit. 
The idea is that you become a Christian and at some later date, you have a kind of advanced experience accompanied by some emotions and some kind of spiritual sign like speaking in tongues or falling down. And there you're fully empowered for ministry. This isn't a biblical model. I understand where they get it from, but it's not a biblical model. Baptism in the Spirit is synonymous with being born again. And it can be confusing because in the book of Acts, things are happening, it looks like, kind of out of sync. But the book of Acts is descriptive of what happened, not prescriptive of what will happen. And at conversion, you get all the Holy Spirit and you're fully, potentially, empowered for ministry. And I say potential because potential doesn't always become actual. You can potentially have an oil well in your backyard, but you don't actualize it unless you actually drill and release the oil. And what happens sometimes is that we find out that though we got all of God's spirit at conversion, God didn't get all of us. Not that we intentionally held back, but as we grow, we found out that we've held on to parts of our hearts and lives from him. And as we give more of ourselves to him, his power is further unleashed through us. As we walk in his commands more fully, we experience his freedom more fully. That was my story. Maybe that's your story. Ironically, uh, I've seen people who seek an emotional post-conversion experience of the Spirit can become experienced junkies. They're looking continually for that feeling to validate their faith. And when the feeling's not there, then they feel empty or they become um, disillusioned or they wander, sometimes tragically off into all kind of moral brokenness. It leads to all kind of problems. If you trust Christ, you've received the Holy Spirit, all of Him. As you walk in obedience... As the Holy Spirit puts his finger on areas of your life that he wants control over, as you give those areas to him, the more of your life he controls, the more freedom you experience in your life. So we don't, we don't seek more experience. We don't seek more power. We seek more obedience. We seek to say yes. Holy Spirit puts his finger on it. Then we say yes. And then we, if we move into freedom. If we obey him, we're living in a full knowledge of truth. And the truth of his lordship leads us to increasing freedom. Verse 35, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God, the two disciples, disciples is a word that means student or learner, heard him say this and followed Jesus. This is the third time John the Baptist has revealed his true colors. First time, I'm not Elijah, I'm just a dude pointing people to Jesus. No, in fact, you're the first genuine prophet in 400 years. You're just not making life about yourself. Second, I'm not worthy to wash his feet. And now he says to two of his own students, hey, you guys ought to follow him. He's the one I've been teaching you about. And then off they go. And let me give you the gist of the next part of the chapter. You can read it for yourself this week. The Lord looks at the two guys who John sends his way and says, what are you looking for? Or what do you want? And they respond with, where are you staying? Now, how do you answer what do you want with where are you staying? Are you wanting to know my address? Jesus knows what they want. So he says, come and see, and not come and see my address. They went with him. They spent the rest of the day starting about 4 o'clock talking. Now, what's going on here? They aren't going to plunge in and do a deep heart-level talk standing right there. It's hard enough for dudes to do that anywhere, let alone standing right there. So it's, what do you guys want means, can you articulate what you're after? Do you know what you want from me? And they respond essentially with, can we talk in private? Where are you staying? And the Lord says, well, come and see, which means let's go talk. And then one of the guys, Andrew, after their talk, went and told his brother Simon, we found the Messiah. So the talk with Jesus made an impact. And enough so that Andrew's first impulse is, i got to go tell my brother. So Simon came back with Andrew to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and gives him a call sign, a nickname. You're Peter. You're Rock. 
Now, remember, John's not randomly given fact, given facts here. When we read the Bible, we can't just go, John's just sort of thinking of stuff, you know, stream of conscience is writing them down. The Holy Spirit inspired this, and John's going to tell us later in his book, I got a huge supply of stories I could tell you from the Lord's life, so he selected which ones make the cut into his book. You got to think about that. Why did John select this one? Why did the Holy Spirit select this one? So a couple of things are in play here. What do you want? The Lord is going to, this is going to be a common kind of question from Jesus. In chapter 2, we'll get there when we get to the next chapter. He says to his mom, what does your concern have to do with me? She's wanting him to, you know, make some wine for this wedding. Chapter 4, the woman at the well, if you knew enough to ask, you'll be asking me for a drink. Chapter 5, the sick guy, do you want to get well? Kind of obvious he does, but why is he asking it? Chapter 6, hungry crowds, where, do you, where are you guys going to buy bread for these people? Chapter 8, the, the woman caught in adultery. Where are your accusers? So the question Jesus asked are designed to get people to recognize, articulate their need, and how Jesus can meet that need. And all the different scenarios, whether it's a wine deficit, not enough food, sickness, a woman caught in sin, the need is always more than what's on the surface, and the solution is always salvation. Everything Jesus did points to him being who John, in his introduction, the first 18 verses, said Jesus is. Jesus knows what they want, who they are, and, what, and who they're going to be. He's not playing games with people. He's, I know what you guys want, do you? Peter, I know who you are. You're rock. You don't know it yet. You just think you're Simon. Let's go back to John's narrative, verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and he found Philip and told him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. These guys were probably grew up buddies. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Jews had a very low view of Nazareth. They thought it was just a low-down, no-good town. And Nathanael asked him, Come and see. So Jesus calls Philip to follow him. Philip goes and finds Nathanael and tells him about Jesus. Nathanael's skeptical. Philip says, Well, just come and see. So what we have in chapter 1 is people encountering Jesus, understanding to a very limited degree who he is, then going and telling their friends and family. That has been, that still is historically, the foundation for the spread of the gospel. Followers of Jesus bear witness to others who in turn become followers of Jesus who repeat the process. And God has used technology, mass meetings, books, conferences, celebrity testimony, all of it. But what he's always used most effectively, and is still the case even in the internet age, is someone with an existing relationship with someone else saying, come and see Jesus for yourself. So we don't change people, we don't convert people, we invite them into our lives, and then we invite them to meet Jesus. I mean, that was my story, that's been my story with my friends who've come to Christ. Verse 47, then Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael was a blunt guy. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. But Jesus knew he was a certain kind of person. He wasn't a game player. He was without guile or no deception in him. Now, some people are less blunt than him, but they're also less honest. This was not Nathaniel. So Nathaniel probably was a blunt guy, used to being blunt and people kind of blowing him off, and Jesus just blew right through it. Yeah, you're blunt, but I can see you, you don't have guile. And so he said, how do you know me? Before Philip called you, when you're under the fig tree, I saw you. He gets even more personal. And Nathaniel said, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the Son of God, the true King of Israel. There's a lot in this we don't know, but it's not hard to speculate what's going on. 
Nathaniel had some kind of experience with God that Jesus knew about. Jesus was fully human, but he also had supernatural. He was God. He had supernatural knowledge. and he was, This is probably something Nathaniel had never told me about, but it was a really important event for him. When I read this, I think about when I was in the fifth grade, and I had this experience with God I will not elaborate on. I don't remember much about the fifth grade, but I remember this. And when I read this, I think it would be like Jesus saying, Terry, when you were in the back of your dad's car in the dark on Windmill Road, 1970, I saw you. Now, look, only me and God know about that. And if I even told you about it, you'd go, because I can't describe my heart what happened that night. I think that's what this was. But Jesus said, look, okay, you've got that experience between you and God, subjective. You believe that I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see greater things than that. So it was a very significant event for him. He's saying, you're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Nathaniel, you believe because I told you about what happened to you at some time when you're under that tree, but you're going to see something greater. And then the Lord's making this important connection for this Jewish guy to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 28, Jacob's asleep. He has this famous Jacob's ladder dream where these angels going up and down this ladder that reaches from heaven to earth. At the top of the ladder is the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac. And then down there at the bottom was God giving Jacob a promise of a thriving life for himself and his offspring in the land. God's revealing himself and telling him his purpose. So Jacob woke up and called the place Bethel, which means house of God. This is a place where Jacob encountered God and where God revealed his plans for him. So the Lord's saying, you don't fully get it now, but I am the place where, God, where people will encounter God. And through me, God is revealing his purpose for people. The greater thing that they would see would be the life, death, resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus. There's a lot packed in that first chapter, but there's one big idea. Let's see if we can figure out what it is. Jesus. That's the big idea. So we don't have to figure out our purpose. It's been given to us. We exist to know Jesus and to make him known. And I talked, we talked in January about, the, about faithfulness from the life of Daniel. And in terms of the details of what life will look like for each of us, it will vary. Faithfulness is going to vary from life to life. But for every one of us, we're going to have the same general purpose. That's why we, we can work together with all of our differences, because we can be like-minded because we have the same general purpose. We exist to know and love Jesus and to make his love known. I've watched a ton of movies and had a ton of conversations where I've heard something like, I'm just trying to find my purpose. And I get it. They're really trying to find kind of their, their often their sub-purpose, but sometimes they just don't know. You don't have to find your purpose that's been given to you. And John figured this out so much so that he didn't even know how great he actually was. His purpose, like yours and mine, is to give our lives away to point with our actions and words to Jesus. And John's going to later say, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. And that did happen. Jesus' ministry rose, was ascendant, and John was executed for, his, executed for his faithfulness. So what would it look like? Here's, here's the application I've been wrestling with in my heart this week. I'll pass it on to you because we're, we're working through this together as a community. What would it mean for us to live in the freedom of truth if we could actually more and more make life less and less about us? What would happen if we could more and more be happy about letting God do whatever he wants in order to magnify Christ in our lives? Know Christ, be a disciple, and everything else is secondary. Of course, we talked about faithfulness. We work at our jobs. We love our families. We have to take care of our bodies. All that's a part of our stewardship. That's faithfulness. But we're here to know Christ in the context of all these other things. 
making Christ known, making disciples, whatever you do for a living, or if your work is largely in the home, your essential calling is to make disciples. That includes your own children, but it's, it's not less than that, but it's certainly more than that. It's not just your own biological family. And if you hear this, and you, like we, how we started, the negativity bias, if you move into, great, another Sunday morning of hearing how I'm failing, more i got to do, that is the negativity bias kicking in. So let's hunt the good stuff. Knowing Jesus, making Jesus known is freedom, joy, and purpose. It is opportunity. And challenge doesn't have to lead to guilt, and we all need to be challenged. I've been enormously challenged by this chapter. If you have guilt, confess it and leave it with Jesus and then embrace the challenge. The reason we start most of our services with some kind of confession is because we sin. We're sinners. We're, we, we feel guilty, not because someone around us is making us feel guilty. We feel guilty because we're guilty. And the good news is we can confess our sin and not be guilty anymore, be, be forgiven. And now we can embrace challenge. Know Jesus, make him known. And I am really often distracted by things other than this. And so it's been good for me to be challenged. When I consider spending my life decreasing so Jesus would increase, to be honest, I feel great relief. And that's a little shocking that I would say I feel to Christy because she knows I don't often talk about my feelings near as much as she would like me to. I talk about what I think. So I thought a lot about this passage, thought a lot about it. But what I feel about it is relief. And here's why. Making life about myself is exhausting. Making life about myself is just unfulfilling. I remember when I was a student at Wichita State and how, how much energy and how exhausting it was before I really made Jesus Lord of my life, just living my life. It was, it was just terrible. Everybody's competition, everybody I'm comparing. And, and I remember the freedom I felt when even to that little small amount, I said, it's not going to be about me. Making life about yourself is exhausting, and it's unfulfilling. I don't even know why I keep doing it, but I do. This feels to me like an invitation to greater joy. That's what it feels like, and that's exactly what it is. So let's pray together. I'm going to give you an opportunity just to talk to God about what's on your heart, and then we'll worship some more together.